The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 24th day of April in 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is right across the way. I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Glad you could be with us. Got a great show lined up for you up ahead. First off, we welcome in the former reliever of the New York Mets, Dennis Cook. In the second half, we'll welcome in New York Times best-selling author, Kostya Kennedy, and he'll discuss his new book on Jackie Robinson titled True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show tonight. Great show, great people, good sports talk, and good sports memories coming up tonight for you, as always. And before we begin, I always like to remind you about Social media. We are out there. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, we are on Twitter. Big presence on Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me personally on Twitter at B Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry. We have them all cataloged out on the website. Listen to them at your leisure and enjoy them anytime you want. Now, I am very happy to introduce our first guest. We remember him best as a pitcher with the Mets from 98 to 2001. Of course, he's a member of the 2000 National League champion Mets, played the Yankees in the Subway Series. He was a World Series champion in 97 with the Marlins and again with the Anaheim Angels in 2002. It's great to welcome to the show tonight, Dennis Cook. Dennis, good evening. Good evening. How are you? Great to have you with us, sir. Now, I want to ask you, growing up in the Houston area, who were your sports heroes and teams uh, as a formative young adult? Well, I've always been particular uh, as far as the college game goes uh, for the Longhorns mm-hmm. in all sports. Texas nice. Longhorns. Okay. And actually growing up as a kid, my, my favorite uh, Major League Baseball player and team was always the Cincinnati Reds. The Big Red Machine, and Pete Rose was my favorite player. Ah, okay, yeah, great choice. Hard not to like a bunch of guys like that, Dennis, that's for sure. Amen. Now, before we uh, get into your college early early career, I'd like to mention I got a note through LinkedIn from Michael Stafford. Now, Michael says he played uh, with you in high school. You played against each other in junior college. Uh, he wanted to drop a note and, and say hi. He's got nothing but praise for you, this gentleman, and hopefully he's listening to us right now, Michael Stafford. You remember Michael, Dennis? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, he was somebody we ran around with as kids. So that's good to hear that, and that's, uh, that's pretty neat that he uh, reached out. People coming out of the woodwork for Dennis Cook tonight, folks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> now, uh, you have been quoted. And correct me if I am wrong, you're just a guy who worked hard to get into that the position you were in. Nobody recruited you out of high school. The Houston kids got all the publicity. If a scout came to town, you thought he was uh, from the Marines, right? 
Yeah, we thought he was from the military. Yeah. You know what he was going <laughs> to draft us to do. Um, yeah, coming out of high school, I had, you know, zero opportunity to go anywhere. Um, I actually went to a uh, tryout. It was uh, a Phillies tryout at Blaine Junior College. And, of course, it's more for the college college coaches to see guys that they hadn't seen, a lot of small-town guys. And uh, I grew up in a small town in Dickinson, Texas. So uh, my high school coach took us up to uh, Brenham, Texas, for this um, uh, Phillies camp. And, actually, there was, a, you know, probably – a hundred kids or so there, and they got all the pitchers on the foul line and uh, told the, to get a throw partner, and we got a throw partner, and they said uh, the guy on the far side squat down and the guys on the on the foul line pitched to him. So we pitched to him, and I was fortunate that my high school coach was um, a longtime Texas high school baseball coach, and um, he knew some people, and we had actually played against one of the uh, – the teams that uh, one of the, their head coach was uh, a part of this camp in Nederland, Texas, and I had thrown real good against them um, earlier in the season, my senior year, and he knew a junior college coach, Bill Berry, out of uh, Angelina Junior College. So I probably threw five pitches, and Coach Berry pulled me to, a, to the side and asked me if I'd be interested in coming to Angelina, and I told him, yeah. I mean, my options were the Marine Corps, uh or a pipe fitter or an insulator back home in the refineries. And I was like, heck, yeah, I'm interested. So uh, yeah. I got a chance to go play at a junior college, which ended up being a fantastic experience for me. We had a great team, great group of guys. Got a lot better just by getting to play and being around better players. And, uh, you know, from there I got recruited to the University of Texas. And, uh, you know, just kind of – life-altering after that, having an opportunity to play with those guys and Coach Scott. Now, at Angelina, Dennis, you were actually drafted by the Padres in the sixth round of the 83 draft, it was. Yeah, it was, uh, and you know, that, that back then they had the, the old winter draft, and that mm-hmm. was for JUCO guys, pretty much. And um, a guy named Mr. Hines, Al Hines, drafted me, um, and he was a wonderful, wonderful man, and that actually... I probably would have signed, but his wife was very sick, so he wasn't able to really pursue too much with the signing of it. And, um, you know, it was, I think they offered me a thousand bucks, and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to stay in school and see what happens after this. Uh-huh. So, uh, but very appreciative to Mr. Hines for, you know, seeing something in me. Right. Yeah, rightfully so, Dennis, definitely. Now, as you said, you stayed in school, and you got to play in the College World Series with uh, the Longhorns, and your teammates, uh, Greg Swindell and Bruce Ruffin, people will recognize those names. Oh, yeah, Greg Swindell, Mm -hmm. Bruce Ruffin, uh, Billy Bates was on that team. Um, You know, we finished second place both years. 1984, we got beat in the finals, and 85, we got beat in the finals. Um you know, we had another guy there that was a first-round draft pick from uh, Cleveland, and I think that was in 85. His name was Michael Pale, who didn't even travel with us all the time. He, you know, he threw a bullpen and a scout saw him, and they ended up drafting him in the first round. Uh, just We had tremendous talent. You know, Coach Gus kept us in line and, you know, really drove and pushed hard and just a wonderful, wonderful experience to be able to be a part of that. And, uh like I said earlier, you know, that right there, 
uh, experience at Texas was life altering for me, uh, not only for me, but for my whole family. Mm-hmm. Good point, Dennis. Uh, we're speaking with Dennis Cook tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, your first appearance with the Giants, September 12th, 1988. Do you remember that appearance, Dennis? Yes, sir. I, mm-hmm. In fact, it's funny. I was golfing with my son today, and uh, and my daughter's boyfriend, we were talking about that feeling. Uh, he, he played, my boy played at TCU, and he was teammates with Nick Lodolo, who okay. pitches for Cincinnati. Yeah. Now, and he, I guess he got his first win today. And they were talking about, you know, that rush and all that. And they said, Dad, what, how did that feel for you? And the funny story is, is I was coming off of a broken rib. Uh, I was in AAA and I broke, broke a rib and threw a pitch and broke, broke a rib towards my back. And, uh, I was kind of on the DL and having a great year. And, uh, you know, just trying to get called up to a September call up in, uh, in 88. And they didn't call me up because I was hurt and I was like, well, let me go to instruction league, you know, for 10 or 10 days or two weeks, let me prove you all I'm healthy, and then y'all make a decision if you want to call me up or not. And, and so I'm like two days two days out, so I'm throwing up in Texas and working out and all that, and two days out, uh, where I'm supposed to leave for Phoenix to go to instructional league, uh, Ralph Nelson, the assistant GM for the Giants, calls me up and says, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just finished working out, and I'm about ready to go eat a plate of Mexican food, and I'm getting ready to go to Phoenix for instructional league. He told me, he says, well, you're not going to go to Phoenix. And then my heart stopped. I was like, what the heck? I mean, you, you know, why not? I want to go to instruction like true because yeah. you're going to be, you're going to start, uh, Thursday or whatever day it was in San Diego. And I was like, Oh my Lord, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad. The, the Giants ended up sending you to Philly and you really endeared yourself. Dennis, to the fans in Philadelphia by by your hard nosed play. I, I read about uh, a drag bunt, and you you slid head first in, into into the bag at first, and uh, those guys in Philly really uh, took to that. You know what? I I, I love playing baseball, mm-hmm. and I only know one way to play, and that's hard. And you know, I got a lot of trouble from. Not a lot of trouble, I shouldn't say that. But a lot of people tell me, don't do that. Don't do, you're a pitcher, don't do that, you don't get hurt. But my thoughts have always been, if I don't play that way, I'm going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I try to pride myself, and I always have tried to pride myself in being a baseball player, not just a pitcher. I want to be a baseball player. And, um, you know, I, I, I played that way in college. I played that way every day. I was more of an outfielder in college than I was a pitcher. Uh, pitched very little, uh, played right field every day and hit every day, uh, at Texas. So I, I just always have, have envisioned myself as a baseball player and I really only know one way and that's the way I know. That is a great message, Dennis, for the kids listening tonight to, to, uh, really formulate yourself to be a complete ball player. If you're going to do it, do it right. And, uh, th- that's, uh, the message that, that we're getting with Dennis Cook tonight. And, uh, I just wanted to touch base with you, Dennis, uh, about an incident w- with the Mets early on when you were with the Phillies. Doc Gooden hit two, two Phillies and Pat Combs, uh, hits the, the doctor on the knee the next time out and he charges the mound. And, uh, you were uh, quite eager to get in there. <laughs> Yeah, that was a funny deal, man. That's that's <laughs> one of my one of my favorite one of my favorite things. Uh, st- 
story to tell, and it's not has nothing to do with me. Um, it's uh, after Dot Dot Gooden charged the mound, and Darren Dalton got a pretty good, got a hold of him pretty good, and was you know thumping him pretty good. Oh man! And then they broke the fight up, and Strawberry came out from from the I don't know if he guess he was in the clubhouse or something. He came around and and. I guess they were perceived that he was trying to come around and sucker punch Dawson and Von Hayes kind of knocked him down. And, you know, there was just a bunch of shouting back and forth and they were actually coming to our place like in a week and we weren't very good then. So, you know, we, we tried to pride ourselves on if we weren't going to win games, we we're going to at least win the fight. <laughs> so, um, they, they talked and talked and the commissioner said, Hey, if, if any Darren Dalton, this is my favorite quote. He said, they were talking about uh, them coming to town and how they were going to get payback on us and all that stuff. And Darren Dalton told told them, "I don't care what happens, just tell them to pack a sack lunch because he was going to go out there and, and freaking beat everybody up." <laughs> so it, it was it, that's one of my favorite quotes of that situation. But yeah, yeah it was a crazy crazy time. And you were you were thrown to the ground. I, I read by Cowboy Joe West. Yep, he got a hold of me, picked me up from behind, and, and threw me down. I didn't even know who did it. I thought it was uh, Tuffle and Greg Jeffers that threw me down. I was ready to fight those guys. They didn't <laughs> have nothing to do with it. Oh, what a fray. Yeah, I, re- I do remember that one. We have Dennis Cook with us tonight on the program. Now, you, you got your first ring with the Marlins. I, I remember watching that series uh, on the MLB Network again during the lockout. They replayed that, and uh, that, that was a pretty good World Series. Oh, it was fantastic World Series. Yeah. Uh, just, just good ball, you know, two really good teams and, you know, goes to, uh, you know, seven games and extra innings. So, you know, everything that you could ask for in a World Series. Yeah, it, it was good. And, and you guys earned that ring. And, uh, the, those, uh, Cleveland Indians were, were, uh, a great ball club. That's for sure. They were really good. They yeah. had a really good team. And, but you know, we had a really good team too. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, no, the, the way of the Marlins was back then: you win a World Series, and they and they uh, break break up the act, and and uh, that that's really too bad, Dennis, that, that they did that. But um, you know what? Yeah, you're you're right there because we had such a good core, guys. Yeah, and they could they could have saved so much payroll by just moving a couple guys. You know, maybe a Devon White, which would we would have hate to have lost, but they could have moved his salary, maybe Bobby Bo. And we had guys coming up. You know, Kase was coming up behind Devon White. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone else was not making a ton of money. So, yeah, but I shame. don't know. You know, they just they decided to clean house and start from scratch. Yeah, and that they did from, from real scratch. That's for sure. Now, you, you came our way, Dennis, uh, in 1999. You were the left-hand setup man for Johnny Franco. And if I... Say the name Alfonso Marquez to you. What comes to mind? Oh, he's an umpire. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. That that yeah, was the yeah. guy that yeah. I, oh, I think that's that famous picture of you in the umpire's face. That was Alfonso. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Funny story about that. Uh, I took my boys. They are when they were twelve years old. We went to Cooperstown to uh, play in that. that big cooperstown tournament they have there. oh yeah and the field of dreams right little, yeah yeah we took our little neighborhood team up there and then we played and one day we said let's go to the hall of fame so we went up there and walked to the hall of fame and uh somebody was going to the bathroom and by the women's bathroom 
literally right by the women's bathroom. That picture is hanging. It was hanging in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if it still is or not. That was kind of funny. I'm going to have to look for that Um, because we go up every summer, Dennis, uh, for the for the inductions. We we have the same hotel room and we're up there every summer. So I am going to take a look to see if I can find that picture. And if if I find it, I'll snap a photo and send it off to you. That's that's a great picture to have in the Hall of Fame. It says so much. Yeah, that kind of sums up my career. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the Hall of Fame, but we're getting kicked out of a game. <laughs> well, it's better than not being in there at all, Dennis, that's for sure. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Dennis Cook with us tonight. Now, the the year 2000, I would like to, to for you to comment on, uh, we're going to talk about Piazza Clemens that really aired itself out during the World Series. How how did you feel about that that pitch that hit Mike Piazza in the head? Uh, I really don't remember that pitch. Okay, all I remember is the broken bat deal. Ah, yeah, and and uh, anybody, I, I mean, I, I'm not a Yankee fan at all, but anybody who says that it was done with no intention at all doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I I, I just remember the broken bat deal where he threw the bat. Back at Mike, and mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you something. I'm glad Mike didn't do anything about that because he's our guy. Like in hockey, he's our our dude. Right. He's our Wayne Gretzky. But I was disappointed that we, as a team, didn't go out there and just start hitting guys till we fought. Mm-hmm. Because that that set a tone that should not have been set. We should have freaking got some with that. In my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I, I thought that was chick, chicken. Right. Yeah, something should yeah. have been done then and there about that. I agree 100%, Dennis. Now, how did, how did you uh, work with Franco? Uh, how, how did that bullpen situation uh, appeal to you? No, oh, I loved it. I loved Johnny Franco. Mm-hmm. Great, great guy. Johnny Franco was him and Al Leiter. We all hung together. Al, Johnny, Robin, Mike, just fantastic people. Uh, Johnny, you know, of course, was our closer, and we loved him, and we tried everything to do to try to set him up and give him as many opportunities. And, you know, Benitez was fantastic, and Turk, and, you know, all those guys were just awesome. Now, uh, Buster Olney commented when you came to New York that you came with your pickup truck, your, your thick prairie drawl, and a dog named Stonewall Jackson. Did you have a do- dog named after the great Thomas Jackson? I did. I had a dog named Stonewall Jackson. Nice. In fact, it, it was actually, I didn't come to town with Stonewall Jackson. I had a dog. Well, I guess I did come to, with Stonewall. He actually got hit by, I think, a garbage truck in New York and killed him. Oh, man. But, uh, yeah, he, he didn't get to spend much time in New York. Yeah. But uh, I when I was with the Rangers, um, when I first got him, he uh, I was on like their, their promotional caravan, and I took him all over the state of Texas with me in my truck. Nice. What kind of dog was it, Dennis? He was a mutt. Okay. Yeah. Old mutt. We found we found him out in the middle of a field and took care of him and took him in and he was he was very good dog. Nice. Sounds great. Now, you you uh, got a chance to visit the White House with with some of your teammates from from uh, the New York Mets. You went to meet uh, then President George Bush. Uh, Both Texans. You and you and the president. Uh, what did you guys discuss during your time there, Dennis? 
Uh, well, we, we, you know, talk, we really did a lot of looking around and checking stuff out and, um, I, we got to sit in the Oval Office, which was really cool. And nice. Got to t- I talked to him. He has a place in, uh, uh, in Central Texas, um, a little, little, uh, farm there in Central Texas. And, uh, I was just talking to him about the, you know, hog hunt and stuff like that and fire ants on his place and, you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff. It was good. Yeah, well, not an experience that happens for a lot of us. That's for sure. Now, oh, it was unbelievable. That's the president of the United States, and we got twenty minutes of his time in uh, in the Oval Office. Pretty good. Pretty neat. Special. Pretty good, Dennis. Now, I want to ask you: uh, throughout your career, it it was a long career. Who would you say your best teammate was? Uh, Al Leiter is one of my favorite people that I played with. Mm Mm-hmm. We enjoy uh, Al on the MLB Network now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, in fact, I sent him a message yesterday. I, he's going to the old timers game, and I wanted to see if you know him and his wife Lori wanted to get together and go have dinner on Friday night, and maybe get a group of guys to go do it. And he's like, "Yeah, for sure. Let's all get together." So, are you are you guys coming out. up, Dennis? Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Yeah. It's been so many years since the Mets put on an old-timers day, and they used to do a great job of it back in the 60s when Seaver and Kuzman were just starting out. They'd have Johnny Double No-Hit Vandermeer, Carl Hubble, George High Pockets Kelly, all these legends from from the uh, 40s and 50s, and it was really a great event. Yeah, you know, the Yankees, I remember early in my career, the Yankees had them, and I'd always want to get to the ballpark early so I could see those old-timers. And, yeah, they, uh, they really had the names, Dennis. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, then you know, that's just, what a fantastic way, and, you know, Mr. Cohen bringing that back is just so good for for everybody, not only the fans, but for the players, too. You know, we get to go back and see guys we hadn't seen in 20 years. Yeah, it's going to be a so, fun weekend. I, I agree. So I'm very appreciative, appreciative to him for doing that and uh, for the Mets, including me. Who would you say your best skipper was, Dennis? Oh, Jim Leland. Yeah. I played for Jim Leland in 97. Uh, I love Bobby Valentine, too. You know, I had him in New York. Mm-hmm. Love Bobby Valentine. Uh, Leland just was just unbelievable. I, I love him. I still love him. Hall of Fame manager, in my opinion, Dennis. Oh yeah, yeah. He's not in the Hall of Fame. If he's not, he should be. No, he's not. He he is worthy. I believe he he had a real stellar career. He was uh, a man of integrity in the dugout, and uh, I'm looking at him from the, the opposition's eyes, and I have nothing res- but respect for the guy. Yeah, you know the one thing that I loved about him is he treated the 25 guys on the roster. There wasn't a number one and a number 25. Everybody was the same. He treated everybody exactly the same. Yeah, you know, and I'll tell you another one that's that's awesome is uh, Johnny Oates. I played for Johnny Oates Johnny in uh, Oates. Texas in '95 and '96. Was a very good manager and a good man too. On top of that, yeah, T- tough to find, tough to find in baseball. That's that's uh, definitely a great answer, Dennis. Now, uh, yeah, of course, uh, I talked about the t- the times here here in New York. What would you want uh, a Mets fan to say about Dennis Cook if there's two guys sitting around shooting the you know what in the bar and they're watching the ball game and they and they say, "Hey, what about Dennis Cook? Do you remember Dennis Cook? What would you like these guys to say about you, Dennis?" Man, I, I just I guess just what I would want anybody, my kids or anybody, to say that you know what he showed up, he did his best, and he was available. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he was available for the manager to use and sometimes good, sometimes not so good, but showed up every day excited and ready to work. I remember one time, Dennis, I forget who, I wish I could damn remember who it was, but you had, you had, you, you and this guy were going to go, and I don't know what it was over, but uh, I guess you, you wouldn't remember that. But uh, it was some incident, and uh, it, it got a little crazy. But uh, you, you don't remember anything like that, do you? Uh, the only one that I remember where we come close to throwing blows was when we were in San Francisco with uh, uh, Marvin Bernard. That's it. That's I- it. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I hit him, which is 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 actually kind of silly. He, I think, he was hitting about two twenty, <laughs> and I hit him on accident, and he's hitting right in front of Barry Bonds. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That I'm gonna hit Marvin Bernard to face Barry Bonds, right? And that's what I told him, and you know, of course, he didn't want to hear that. But anyways, you know, he and I've run into Marvin since then doing you know this uh, the international stuff that I do, and he is a wonderful, uh, wonderful man. So uh, I look forward to seeing him anytime I get a chance to see him. And nice. With him. It's nice you guys put all that garbage behind you. That, that, that's oh, yeah. tremendous. You know, it, listen, it's just competition. It's got nothing to do with being, you know, out to hurt anybody or anything. You know, he's got a job to do and i got a job to do. You, you have coaching experience, as we said, Dennis. You, you coached internationally. You coached, uh, I believe, an independent ball uh, did some of these guys that you played for, did, did some of their characteristics as a, as a manager and a coach rub off on you uh, when you went into that position? Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've done stuff um, I, over in Sweden. I've managed their national team. I worked with the German national team for a WBC uh, qualifier. I worked with the Italians in, for the WBC. And, um, you know, I uh was a pitching coach for them with a couple uh, European championships. So, of course, they, it wears off on you. Like I said, you know, Jim Leland is a wonderful manager. You know, the way he handled people. I worked for Augie Garrido uh, mm-hmm. one year at Texas, University of Texas. And, you know, some of the things that he talks about and, you know, his, his insight on, you know, um, the mental aspect of things and competing and approach and all that so yeah i you know that's all we are we're all scavengers we just scavenge from people that we get to work for and take the stuff that's good and you know kind of combine it with what we think and go from there and they as you say you certainly had had uh, some great examples to to learn from now there have been some changes in the game dennis since you retired uh what do you think of some of them what do you think of the replay uh, I don't mind the replay. I don't mind the replay. I'm just, I'm just kind of done with all the, some of this other stuff. You know, I, I keep sitting here watching the Giants stealing up by eight runs in the ninth inning, and I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah. And I know Gabe Kapler wants to tell everybody how to play baseball nowadays, but I, I just have a feeling that the players need to start managing the game a little bit more. Mm-hmm. When somebody steals by, when they're up by eight runs in the ninth, and somebody needs to get drilled. And let the players take care of that. And then the guy that thinks about stealing now up by eight runs, maybe he's not so so emboldened to steal in that situation or bunt or whatever that is. Right. And, of course, all the analytics, all the information, I wouldn't have been worth a damn pitching in today's game with all this information. <laughs> it's 
too much. Yeah, I know. Just go play. You know what? How about just uh, approaching the game with your strength? And my strength is better than your strength. Throw the ball, see the ball, hit the ball. Right, Dennis? And run like you stole something. Yep. <laughs> That's great. Well, Dennis, right. it, it's been a real pleasure having you with us. Uh, I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for taking time uh, away from your family uh, to spend some Sunday evening with us back here in New York. And we really look forward to seeing you in August back, back at City Field. Hey, I appreciate you guys having me. I really enjoyed doing that, visiting with y'all. No worries, Dennis. You take care. All the best to you and the family. Thank you, sir. That is Dennis Cook, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll talk with the great author, Kostya Kennedy, about his book about the immortal Jackie Robinson. So stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBB Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. I am very happy that baseball season is in full swing. I was out at Sidley Field on Thursday for a day game, which uh, I really enjoy day baseball, especially during the summer. It was cold Thursday, though. It was like a wind tunnel on the field-level concourse. And uh, it was a little rough sitting there, but the Mets prevailed, did a great job, doing very well this young season, which I'm happy about. And uh, Jackie Robinson Day was uh, the Mets' home opener where we celebrated 75 years since Jackie broke the color barrier. And that is a perfect lead-in to a chat with our next guest. He's an editorial director at Dot Dash Meredith and a former senior writer at Sports Illustrated. He is the New York Times best-selling author of 56, Joe DiMaggio and the Last Magic Number in Sports, which was, by the way, a runner-up for the 2012 PEN ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing. And uh, a book we discussed with him on the air, Pete Rose, An American Dilemma, another great, great read. Both books, by the way, won the Casey Award. You may uh, know about the Casey Award, the best baseball book of the year. Uh, the the uh, Both of those publications won that. And he's taught at Columbia and NYU. His new book is titled True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. It's great to welcome back to the show, Kostya Kennedy. Kostya, good evening. How are you doing, Bill? Great to be on with you. It's good to have you, Costas. It's good to have you, and we we got some some great stuff to talk about tonight. Now, 
I wanted to check with you, and I think the folks would be interested in knowing that you are originally from Great Neck, which is right up the road from us here. Uh, you graduated with a B.A. in philosophy from Stony Brook. You it. Yeah, I'm a Long Island kid. My first job right. was a Newsday, my first real uh, newspaper job. And and um, was, was that up in Melville, cost you? Yes, indeed. Yeah. I actually worked at some weekly papers out there in uh, Setauket and St. James um, and that whole the Three Village area up there. And then uh, I started working as a writer um, at Newsday, first working on the police beat and then uh, moving over and starting to cover high school and, and college sports. Excellent. So the folks uh, can can rest easy in knowing you got two local boys on the radio tonight, folks. So let, let's get get right into the core of the subject matter. Why did you title the book "True," Kostya? Well, I you know there's a little uh, epigraph at the beginning of the book. It, it, it came to me sort of late in the process. The subtitle of the book, which is uh, the Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. talk to you about it in a minute if you're interested. That that sort of sure. the premise going in. But true sort of came to me late, and and I I, I felt it you know in going through these different periods of his life. Um, I'll just read you a quick epigraph. It just says, "Whatever the context and circumstances, Jackie Robinson remained true, true to the effort and the mission, true to his convictions and his contradictions." Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a man of of that kind of singular purpose. Um, and I think it's important to say true to his contradictions as well because he was. He did have uh, sort of unpredictable political views. He changed his approach on the ball field quite a bit. He wasn't uh, easily pigeonholed into any particular thing, either as an athlete or as a uh, man. Uh, so true seemed to be the consistent. Uh, I like that it sort of, you know, represents a, con- a certain consistency that he had sort of underneath uh, those changes and those differing approaches. It's nice. It's it's definitely a good choice for sure. Now, it's sort of uh, let's say unconventional biography of Jackie Robinson. There are un- enough out there. Th- this book centered on four transformative years in the life of Jackie Robinson. Why did you choose to center on those four particular years, Kostya? Yeah. So it's <clears throat> the four seasons are just as you say, particular years. Uh, I also just mentioned they are, you know, figuratively, metaphorically, the spring, summer, autumn, and winter of Robinson's public and athletic life. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wanted to see him in a different guise each time. I wanted there to be enough difference in, in his experience and who he was as a player, as a person, and in the environment around him. So that was a, a big part of that. And I felt that if we could look at him at these sort of isolated views in his life would be a chance to sort of at once get in a little more into a little more detail into what his daily life was like, what his experience was like in these times without having to necessarily go blow by blow through every year. Um, so the first year is 1946 when he's um, a rookie with, with the Montreal Royals. That's really the year, Bill, where he integrated baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, uh, he, he came in in 47 with the Brooklyn Dodgers, but in 46 he would be the only black player in an all-white international league, um, getting used to that, uh, the, you know, a high level of baseball and a sort of unprecedented degree of celebrity in his life and unprecedented pressure. When we see him in 1949, uh, the next year that I look at, the figurative summer, 
he is the best baseball player alive. He just destroyed the game. He um, wins MVP that year. He's a dominant force on the base pass. This was the first year where Robinson, who had early on, and much has been made of this, sort of turned the other cheek and, and was willing to take the abuse and you know get hit by a pitch as he did more often than any other player in the game and just jogged the first. In 49, he changed that. He said, I'm not taking it anymore. And... Um, he said, they better be rough on me because I'm going to be rough on them. And he was sort of Robinson unleashed and just such a dominant, dominant player. So I wanted to see him at that time. Then autumn 1956 uh, is his last year in the major leagues, a sort of valiant comeback for him as a player after a very difficult 1955 season. And also was seeing him begin to look at his life after baseball. He's already begun to have a relationship with uh, Dr. King and is getting involved in uh, civil rights and, and other sort of political platforms. And then the last year, the winter, is 1972 now. That's the year that Jackie died uh, at the way too early age of, of 53 towards the end of that year. But it's also a key year in that it was the year that he became sort of repatriated by baseball. Uh, after his retirement, he was essentially distanced from baseball, not quite as strange, but out of the game, wasn't going to uh, old-timers games. He was uh, disappointed at baseball's failure to bring in uh, African-Americans in the front office and the managerial level, level. But in 1972, in the early part of that year, he began to reconnect with the game in large part through Don Newcomb and some other people and reestablish a relationship first with the Dodgers and then with baseball overall, which was sort of a fitting homecoming uh, and, and have him sort of go out you know, where, where he belongs in, in the heart of baseball, and then we do get to, to see him at the end of his life. Right. We're speaking with Kostya Kennedy tonight on the program about his book, True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. Who did you speak to along the way? Give us uh, some insight into that, Kostya. Uh, and any interesting names that uh, you encountered along the way writing this particular book? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. There's a lot of um, people who I got to speak to um, at different at different levels. You know, so, sometimes the more interesting are not necessarily the most famous. Um, so I will say that I got to speak to some people who had been around in Montreal, um, Canadian uh, African Canadians um, from the from the black community in Montreal, and also people from the you know Jewish community, Italian community, um, who were living in Montreal in 1946, and that was just really revealing to me it was the year of Robinson and also the year right after World War II and, and these were people who had seen Jackie play at the stadium there so that was that was very powerful um, mm-hmm. among his ex-teammates I did speak to Carl Erskine this is a book I've been kind of gathering string on for for some years um, uh, having done a story on Rachel Robinson his widow about eight years ago for Sports Illustrated um, so over time I spoke to Al Franca who unfortunately is no longer with us and several of other people in baseball. I had a great talk with Bob Aspermonte, the old, uh, he's a Mets player for a while. And, right, and, and yeah. And just, just at the end of um, Jackie's life, he was, he was really good. Um, Fred Clare, a Dodger, <coughs> former Dodger general manager and president, was, was a wonderful person to speak to. And there was a, I spoke to Ira Glasser, who was a, he became the uh, head of the American Civil Liberties Union for 25 years. Uh, and he was 12 years old, I want to say, 11, 12 years old, in 1949 when he was watching Jackie. And he 
you know, a man who went on to devote his life to civil rights, said that those years in Brooklyn on those streets, uh, because of, the, of what Jackie was doing and because of the environment at Evans Field is what led him to devote his life to what, what he did. And he was extremely interesting and, and insightful to speak with. It's interesting, Kostya, that you bring up the name of Bob Aspermonte because Med fans may or may not know. Uh, he was he was a Brooklyn Dodger, and he also, with the Mets, was one of the quote-unquote final answers to the ongoing third base problem with the Mets. They brought in Bob Aspermonte, but like Joe Torre and so many other players, they brought him in too late, and uh, they went on to people like Gamus Otis and Joe Foy to play third base, but that's a story for another night. <laughs> now, yeah, we'll get, to, we'll get to Hubie Brooks and Wayne yeah. Garrett when we do that one. <laughs> yeah, right. More, more final solutions right there, Kostya. That, yeah. that, that's definitely true. Now, uh, Jackie, not only a trailblazer, but a trailblazer for the equal rights and fair treatment of all people, not just the African American, but all people. John Grisham brings that particular point out about the book. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, some of that was implicit, uh, in what he was doing, you know, the, the platform then and, and a big struggle. Um, in those years, of course, was the, was the civil rights struggle that, that pertained largely to desegregation um, and to trying to get equal uh, treatment, equal protection for African Americans. But what Robinson did, no, no question, uh, helped people with with disabilities. Uh, and, and he would speak about people, you know, immigrants, um, people in almost any community that was overlooked. You know, he had a little bit of a connection with the Jewish community in a, in a big way because, remember, he's breaking in just a couple of years after the camps were liberated um, in, in Germany and in Poland. And that whole, it's very much part of the, the feeling and the scene, in, in, certainly in New York in those days. Um, and he, you know, he, he, he understood what it was like to be an oppressed people. Um, and there was definitely a, a connection on those grounds. Um, he did a lot of interfaith work between Christian groups and Jewish groups. Uh, so he was absolutely a person who, while of course uh, representing African Americans in that civil rights cause was a, certainly at the forefront, um, he did speak for and help uh, advocate for people, any people who are discriminated against. And that's an in interesting point to uh, note and to remember about Jackie Robinson. Now, y your book, Kostya, might be picked up by the younger generation. And did that thought enter your mind that you might be influencing uh, the viewpoint of, of a younger group of people who uh, now... Due to the 75th anniversary, the the uh, 50th anniversary of his passing, uh, they can begin looking at the life of Jackie Robinson. Did any of that enter into your planning? Well, I don't know if that specifically. It's actually it's, it's a good question, Bill, because um, who's the reader, right? And and I think one of the things that I tried to do with this book was make it satisfying for somebody who, frankly, like myself. It knows a lot about Robinson, right? I still want it to be yeah. fresh and new for you or your listeners or whoever it might be who knows a lot about Jackie that, that it's telling, telling things in a new way and, and full of things that you might not have known. 
but also be there and be accessible as a way to tell the story that you really understand what Robinson went through and who he was and the good times in his life as well as the hard times. There's, there's plenty of plenty of those. Um, and and so in that sense, the uninitiated reader is was certainly in my in my mind. You know, whatever age that might be, whether it's a young person or, or an older person who hadn't uh, had that exposure. Um, I didn't necessarily think of an age group in particular, but I did certainly think of uh, people who uh, may not have been exposed, while at the same time think of people who who have a little bit of knowledge. Good point. Good point, Kostya. We have Kostya Kennedy with us tonight talking about his new book on the great Jackie Robinson, um, Life Outside the Game. Now, we know about Jackie on on the diamond, Life Outside the Game. Now, there were a lot of troubled situations for the man. Um, his health wasn't the best. He seemed to be embittered or a little at least disappointed by like you say the uh exclusion of blacks in the front office in major league baseball talk a little bit Kosti, if you would about life uh outside the uh white lines for jackie yeah i mean i think it was exactly what you're saying what we're talking about you know he, he was a, a purposeful uh person and and so there was, there was lots of joy in his life and in his, he had a, you know, wonderful relationship with his, with his, uh, with Rachel Robinson, his widow, who's still, who's still with us. And he, you know, he had lots of good friends and I think in many ways he and Rachel and the family felt very lucky for the, for the opportunity they had had and the life that he led. They certainly made the most of that opportunity. But there was, there were no question there was disappointment, um, both on the larger level as we're talking about, uh, um, baseball sort of slowness to integrate, which we would have liked to see sooner, uh, and also on the personal level, his health, as you mentioned, uh, he lost his son Jackie Robinson Jr. Um, just a year before he himself died. Uh, Jackie Jackie Jr., who'd had a troubled time and had dealt with drug addiction, um, died in a in an automobile accident, a uh, single car automobile accident on the Hutchinson River Parkway, um, and that was an extremely, I mean. That doesn't even need to be said. An absolutely devastating uh, moment for for the Robinson family, and, and and which never really went away for the rest of his life. Um, and his health, as you mentioned, was primarily diabetes and, and complications from that. Um, Jackie was a p- person who didn't drink and didn't smoke. He had no interest in that. He did like his sweets, um, which is no <laughs> no no big sin. Uh, but it's not great when you have diabetes, and he would even say he wished he'd taken a little more care of himself in that regard in terms of, of what he chose to eat and what he what he did. So he had some some pain and difficulty in his life. He almost lost his sight entirely by the time he died and had various issues. Um, but there was also a lot of goodness, a lot of happiness in in those years and in his overall life as well. In the years that you've written about, cost you what was your favorite to write about and maybe you've unearthed a little bit more uh than the others and what would what would those facts be in the context of the book yeah you know it's i'm 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 gonna kind of sidestep it i'll be honest and avoid picking my favorite uh child okay (laughs) but it's a a really good question i'd say if you'd ask me 
if we were having a conversation while I was in the middle of writing the book, whatever year I was in, I would have said, Bill, this is my favorite year. This is the best year yet. <laughs> um, because you get into it and you have these discoveries, certainly when I was having the opportunity to sort of go back and spend my time in Montreal um, in, the, in that year right after the war and in that community uh, was, was very revealing and, and sort of a pleasure to be there. But Brooklyn, partly through speaking to some of the people on the streets, I mentioned uh, Ira Glasser and there are other people um, who I spoke to sort of in the world around there, um, and, then, and then also seeing, really kind of taking a, a tight look at, 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 at what a phenomenal player Robinson was. I mean, I think in some ways it is possible to say that gets under, understated um, and overlooked because obviously his impact was so far beyond the diamond um, that one can forget that for the, the middle of his career, the four or five years of his best years, he was just an absolutely elite, dominant player. Um, and it's, it's such a shame that he, because of the exclusion of blacks, couldn't have started his career career earlier. Um, and then I think the last two years that were, were moving to me in some ways, you know, because we were seeing a man sort of confronting uh, the, the, the moving on in his life and then the end of it. Um, again, not that they were sad necessarily, but they were sort of real. Uh, and in all those places, I, spent, I felt like I spent enough time and spoke to enough people that I was able to come up with find new things, um, new to me, certainly, that, that enabled me to tell the story in a, in a way that um, was appealing and engaging to me. I, I, I don't want to sound selfish, but that's when you, as a writer, that's the first step. You have to be, you know, as you say, which do you like best? You have to really like what you're writing about or mm-hmm. find it interesting. And I, and I really, I, I say I found it for different reasons for all, for all four years. New York Times best-selling author Kostya Kennedy with us tonight talking about Jackie Robinson. Now, in the first chapter, you uh, mentioned something that intrigued me right away. It, it said, had Robinson gone early to Brooklyn, give us a little, uh, without giving away the store, a little uh, hint about that particular aspect. Yeah, no, for me, that was one of the things that I hadn't really seen sort of talked about. Yeah. Discussed. Um, and, and, if you look at way, what he was doing, and I, and I do get into this more uh, in more depth, but it's 1946. The Dodgers are in a pennant race, um, and they could, they could have used Jackie Robinson, who was in AAA and was basically tearing it up. And w- when that year ended, 1946, um, the Dodgers tied with the Cardinals, and they ended up losing in the playoffs. The Cardinals went to World Series, beat the Red Sox. Down the stretch that year, they had, you know, uh, guys like, um, you know, Eddie Sankey was having a very difficult end of, his, end of the year that year. Uh, uh, Eddie Mixis was playing uh, in the middle infield. They had guys at, at first, third, second, and short who were not just like Ed Stevens, you know, guys who were not Howie Schultz, were not really producing and had sort of every, you know, journeyman kind of careers. If, if Robinson had been there for six, eight weeks towards the end of that season, it's almost inconceivable that the Dodgers wouldn't have been one game better. They lost a bunch of games by one run, two runs. And if they had, they would have gone to World Series, right? And mm-hmm. then, who knows, they could have won the World Series, right? It changes the whole complexion of the whole wait till next year Dodgers, right? So I found that just so interesting. And I think from a baseball standpoint, there's no question uh, almost any other player would have been brought up. 
Now, I want to just be clear, and again, I, I explain it more, discuss it more in the book. That's not to say I think he should have been brought up. There's no, because the stakes were just too high. Um, and it's a little bit like when people say, oh, the Beatles should have let George Harrison write some more songs. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. It kind of works out okay for the Beatles, you know? Like, they did all right. Yeah. So <laughs> the success of the Robinson experiment was so great and worked so well, you, you can't say he should have been brought up early. But from a baseball standpoint, boy, it's hard not to see the, the logic that might have been there. It's an interesting concept, Kostya, and it's really part of, like we always say, about what makes baseball great because it gives you uh, more fodder for a very interesting conversation. And um, I just want to touch on the point that Jackie retired rather than report to the New York Giants at the end of his career. Let's fill the uh, folks in and the, the youngsters about why did Jackie choose to retire rather than go to the Giants? Yeah, so at the end of his career, obviously, it's, it's, we're in the offseason of 1956. And, and, and quite honestly, though, like Robinson knew he was finished and he didn't really look back uh, with regret on, on his baseball career being over. His body was just giving giving way at that point. But in the aftermath of that season, there was a lot of talk about would, they, would Robinson be traded. Robinson, meanwhile, was setting himself for a career after baseball, and he took a job, I want to say in November, December, with Chock Full of Nuts as a vice president there. Mm-hmm. Um, and But he didn't announce it. He didn't announce that he was going to retire and take this job. He would had an agreement with Look Magazine that he would reveal that exclusively um, in their pages, in the pages of Look Magazine. If between the time he takes the job, does the story with Look, in those days, you know, there's a big period of time between when you sit down and do a story and then it actually gets created and printed and, and out. In that interim, Walter O'Malley and the Dodgers traded him to the Giants. Uh, you know, and this is, it's not quite the Yankees. It's not trading him to the Yankees if you're a Dodgers fan, but it's, pretty, but it's the next closest thing. Yeah. Uh, and so much so that in the days afterwards, the photographers came up to um, Jackie's house. He had Giants penance. He posed with Jackie Jr., uh, talked about, you know, joining the Giants. He got a telegram from Willie Mays welcoming him to the team. Then soon after that, when the look magazine, right, the eve of the, of the story breaking, he made the announcement that, in fact, he was going to retire. Um, and he wrote to Horace Stoneham the, of the Giants saying, you know, thank you for wanting me. It's not because... I don't like the organization. I have this opportunity. Um, and that's, that's how it went. Um, and he, he, you know, he had a, a life after baseball. And it's a good thing that he, he never played for another team, although he never quite forgave uh, Walter O'Malley for making that trade. Walter O'Malley, a tough man to forgive for a lot of reasons, Kostya, that's for sure. <laughs> and on that note, we will uh, take our leave. It's been a real pleasure, Kostya Kennedy, for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us down here on Long Island. Once again, folks, the new book is titled True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, and we wish you nothing but the best with it, Kostya Kennedy. Thank you so much, Bill. It's been great being on with you. All the best. You take care. Take care. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Dennis Cook and Kostya Kennedy, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. I'll see you next on May 1st. We got the great Cookie Rojas and uh, that young rascal, Felix Cavalieri. 
Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.